Welcome to Youth Court Unsealed, a look behind the gavel. I'm Judge Stacey O'Neill. I'm a county court and youth court judge in Madison County, Mississippi. And I'm Stacey Bevel, and I am the county court youth court judge in Lee County, Mississippi. Today, we're going to talk about the seven different kinds of kids that we see in youth court. And um, those seven types are a delinquent child, a child in need of supervision, a neglected child, an abused child, a child in need of special care, a dependent child, and then a truant child. So Stacy, let's just start with delinquent child. We've talked about this a little bit in other episodes, but what is a delinquent child? A delinquent child is a child who's reached his 10th birthday and has committed a delinquent act. Um, we deal with um, children of all ages above 10. There's a lot of um, nuances about detaining children that young, and that's a whole other podcast, but um, 10th birthday and committed a delinquent act. So what happens if a nine-year-old steals a car? What happens? Well, they would be, I believe, a child in need of supervision. You would proceed in that way in your petition. Because a child who is nine years old can't be adjudicated as a delinquent child. Yeah. But the next category that we're going to talk about is child in need of supervision. So let's go ahead and talk about a child in need of supervision. That's that is a category that I think most people don't really understand. They're not familiar with that term. And they're not, uh, we don't use it as much. Uh, chins, if there's judges on here, um, that is your chins children. Um, that could be that a child is uh, just in trouble all the time at home, not really committing a crime, but just needs some additional supervision, needs some additional help. Um, also, uh, truancy children, uh, children that have been court ordered to attend school under a valid court order, and they are not, or they are coming to court as truancy. In my court, we file those as chins. Uh, chins is a runaway. Uh, children that leave home. Um, it to me it is it is the help component of a delinquent child. You're not you're going to have children that might have committed a delinquent act because under chins it does say they could have committed a delinquent act. And I guess you could adjudicate them both ways. I have never seen that, but but there's something else going on that you need to deal with under chins. Yeah, a lot of times I'm seeing chins that are drug cases, kids that are using drugs, their parents are sort of helpless to control that or um, or they're sneaking out at night. Right. They're, they're engaging in very risky and sometimes dangerous behavior that's not a crime. You know, they're not running away and staying away. They're sneaking out the window at night and the parents need help to, to deal with that. Um, because they're a child in need of supervision, I think our orders use the term incorrigible, um, which is not a word that people really use much anymore, but they're kids that the parents need help to help control them. And so when they come in as a child in need of supervision, you know, the dispositional alternatives for a child in need of supervision are very limited. You know, we can order counseling, we can order that the child cooperate with their parents you know it's kind of silly to, to order a child to obey their parents but we do it 
And, you know, you get into the enforcement aspect. You get into the enforcement aspect of your dispositions on chins. Yeah. Because you can't incarcerate them. I mean, you know, you can't put them in detention. And so it's like what you said. A lot of times you're, I said, you know, but I think that the chins aspect of the reason we do that is that we want to offer a targeted help to them, to that family which could be a MyPAC program in our... What is MyPAC? MyPAC is, uh, I think our MyPAC is with Youth Villages, and it is a uh, program that goes into the home that uh, deals with mental health. Their their main focus is to keep it from escalating, to keep it to go going from, uh, to residential. Uh, it's an in-home, community-based mental health program. It's very intensive. Uh, but to me, in chins, I think something like that is is what you're looking at, or setting, making sure counseling is going on, or uh, a mentor program, or you know something like that that um, would be good for them. I think a lot of times when we have a parent who comes to the youth court and fills out the paperwork to get that process started, a lot of times I'll see a kid on a delinquent act. And then the counselors will tell me, well, judge, we had this chins already going. And that's what happens is that a chins is a child that needs supervision more so than they're able to get at home. And that supervision is, is coming from the court. And I'll tell you, we just in history in my court, I don't do a lot of chins, you know, and actually saying this all out loud with you makes me think that maybe I need to look at that a little more and and take that lane with them because we all as judges have families that present themselves to the court. You know, I don't know what to do, you know, and, and us saying this out loud makes me think that that might be a better avenue for us to go down than just, uh, even if they committed the delinquent act, something to think about that to use more that I'm not using enough. I don't think. Yeah. We, we use, a significant amount of chins. Um, it doesn't compare to the other categories, but it is when a parent is at their wit's end with a teenager who is out of control, then they they need help. We we put those kids on probation. Their probation may look different than other kids' probations. Um, sometimes those kids who are adjudicated as a chin, they come into my juvenile drug court, which is an intense supervision when there's drugs at issue. At the end of a chin's proceeding, you end up with a court order, and we call that a valid court order because if they continue to engage in dangerous, risky behavior, then with a valid court order, if they violate that, you can bring them back on a contempt and if they're adjudicated in contempt of that order, then they can be detained in a detention center. But that's obviously not where you want to go for childish behavior. Um, it is a lot. that for the truancy. When I said we don't do a lot of chins, we uh, the charge, one thing we need to, to be clear about is when you bring a child on a petition, there is a charge, you know, and if, and then you adjudicate them one of these kinds of children. The charge would be in my court, truancy, and then they are adjudicated on child and native supervision. That is where our chins come in in our court because we have a huge truancy docket where I live. Yeah, we're going to talk about truancy one day because uh, Judge Stacy Bevel is 
the expert when it comes to truancy. I've learned a lot from her, how to, how to help schools with kids that are truant. All right, so that's child in need of supervision, and we can talk about that more in depth another day, but just wanted you to know that exists, and parents, when they, when parents have nowhere else to turn, we, there is a place to turn, and that is the youth court to help with children that are out of control. All right, the next category is a neglected child, um, and that neglect can be in education, it can be in medical it can be in the physical needs of the child. And so let's just talk about the different types of neglect. So I'll talk about educational neglect first and then throw it to you for the other ones. The educational neglect is when you have a child who you're not taking to school. If it's a teenager who won't go to school, that's kind of a different category. But we're talking about elementary kids, small kids, Compulsory school age is, I think, six. And if you're not educating your child, then that's educational neglect. So then people say, well, what about homeschooling? Um, if you're going to homeschool your child, you've got to actually do something with the Department of Education to register, fill out something saying, I'm homeschooling. Homeschooling can be a wonderful thing. It can be a horrible thing. And I think those people who do homeschooling would also agree with that. There are some people who say they're homeschooling just to avoid the consequences of not taking their kids to school. There are some people that are homeschooling that are doing a wonderful, wonderful job of homeschooling. And so educational neglect is one of those things that, you know, just because you're homeschooling doesn't mean that there isn't some still some accountability in what you're doing to educate your child. I can't come in and say, you've got to do this curriculum. I can't be the judge of how you're teaching or what you're teaching as long as you're teaching it has to be legitimate. It has to be that you are teaching them how to read and write and do arithmetic. And then the other topics, I'm not going to get into that. So, you know, what, what, any, any other ideas on educational neglect specifically? We had, um, when we really first started doing our truancy, um, I had an informal program and it really works well. And then we said do a lot of just petitions, um, you know, you come in, it's way more than you can deal with sitting on that bench. You know, truancy is the gateway to everything. And that's a, for a whole nother podcast that I'm going to say over and over again. When that child comes through that door and can't get himself to school and neglect, normally when we talk about neglect, it's a, we think of it as a protection case, a CPS case. And when these are actually filed in my court, CPS is not involved. It's the State Department of Education who their school attendance officers have preferred this case for being compulsory school age. The question becomes, does CPS need to be involved? So we have some children. I'm a mandated reporter. And there are things that unfold in front of me in court. There's things that, that have to be reported. You know, for a long time, I would say, you need to make a report. Maybe I didn't think they needed to come up there. Uh, and we got crossways, CPS and I did, because with my docket being so large, I'm uncovering all kinds of stuff. And, you know, that's too much work. We can't do, we can't do, we can't do, we can't do. And, and I had to get out the statute and show them that Ed Neglect was part of their job. And I know people listening to some like, my CPS can't do what they do, but Ed Neglect is such a way to get help to families that need it because it's the symptom. It's not the problem. Right. It's the symptom. And so when you actually get in there, you're going to find what the problem is. 
Um, but like I said, it's just the symptom. So yeah, educational neglect doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's usually a symptom that there's other problems in the home. The reason probably that CPS doesn't really want to focus on that is it's usually not a safety issue. It doesn't appear to be a safety issue. They have their sights on our children in danger of losing their life rather than are they in danger of not getting an education. So I went to the past couple of days, and for you listening, Stacy and I are sitting in the same room. Yes, we are. I'm in Jackson, and I was um, I went to a, a policy um, summit type thing that CPS hosted, and that was one of the conversations that we had was taking the definition of neglect and figuring out where CPS actually sits in that definition, um, and this could be one of those that we look at being more community-based services versus the court because I have 14,000 children in my district and my school, um, according to the State Department of Education, the schools in my district uh, is about an average of about 25% truancy rate. I can't see all those children, no. not even informally. But um, anyway, that, like I said, that is a discussion for a whole nother day. I cannot wait to have it because it is my passion. Um, I think for judges that are doing these types of cases, ask your CPS if they are screening out educational neglect. Just ask your local folks and see what they say. And and if you're seeing a lot of educational neglect cases, then yours aren't getting screened out. And they don't necessarily get screened out at the state level, but they're probably getting screened out at the local level and you're not seeing anything about it. One other thing I do want to say that um, there was a mistaken belief until we had this conversation around the table about this that CPS believed that school attendance officers were social workers. They are not. Um, They are not required to be social workers. They are fact-gathering people, but it's to make that referral. They don't go out and try to fix what's wrong. They identify it. You know, I think that that sometimes is mistaken that CPS believes will, and that's what mine told me, have them go out there, have them go out there. And I was like, well, they did, and there's a problem. <laughs> but they don't fix the problem. But they don't fix the problem. Right. They just basically report it. All right, so other than educational neglect, the next category would be medical neglect. The other type of, um, like you said, we're looking at metal, medical neglect um, that comes in all different shape, forms, and fashion, actually. We have received calls where there has been um, – diabetic children that weren't receiving the correct type of care. Uh, We've received calls where mental health children are in maybe a hospital and have presented to the ER and their parents will not consent for treatment. And it is such that they have been declared a serious danger to themselves normally. Been involved in situations where children need surgery. Uh, That was one of a large one I was involved in at one time. And and even in the statute, it says, or medical, surgical, <laughs> it actually says the word surgical in, in the statute. So uh, we got involved in that. I didn't enjoy that at all, but yeah. it is, it's in the statute. There it is. Um, so that's kind of more what we get. Sometimes kids have suicidal ideation and the parents aren't taking that seriously. There's a lot of different situations about that, you know, what do you do in that case if a, a child is telling a medical professional that they want to commit suicide, but yet the parents just don't believe them because they're aggravated with them? 
it's almost like crying wolf. Most of the situations I have, this has been an ongoing thing. And when you get that parent in front of you, you can see the anguish. You know, they're they're at their wit's end. And I, I will tell you that most of the time when that happens to us, once the parent removes themselves from the situation, the child is taken and taken to treatment and they have a chance to calm down and and think through things and, and talk to their families more, then I give the majority of those children back Pretty <laughs> at quick. the shelter even yeah. because they're frustrated and I get it. But at the same time, medical professionals nor the court have been involved in all of that. And we have to take those very seriously. So one category about medical neglect, we probably need to talk about the fact that some some parents have different views about how much medical intervention. There's some religious faiths that have very strict rules about blood transfusions or certain medical procedures that might, you know, be one of those things that, well, I don't want my child to get a blood transfusion, but the doctors say they need it. I've never had one of those cases, but I know they do exist. I've read articles. I've seen news headlines. You know, if we had that particular case, we probably couldn't talk about it specifically anyway. But there is an exception in the rule about neglected children that if you want to practice your religion and pray more than other medical treatment, there is an exception that's carved out in the statute. So, but those are hard decisions. So that's educational and medical neglect. The other category would be a situation, and and this is probably what I get the most, is we've got a house with no running water. We've got a house that should be condemned because it's that nasty and that messed up. And and so, you know, those situations fall under the general neglected because of not providing enough food or shelter or clothing, the necessities of life. Talk about that a little bit. You know, we get all kinds of situations and it's, as a judge, you can see that some of it is active neglect and some of it is passive neglect. And I think that, I believe that the future of our court systems are going to have to learn to separate that better and how we deal with it. Yeah, it's it's hard because, and, and I think the discussion that is being had right now is, well, poverty is not neglect. And, and I agree, poverty is not the same thing as neglect, but poverty can lead to neglect because if, if your child doesn't have food to a reason that's no fault of your own, then that doesn't mean they get food. I mean, it's if a child is hungry, a child is hungry. And when presented with that, we have to act to protect. And the way the, way the law is written here in Mississippi, we are supposed to act. I mean, as judges, as CPS, um, but, you know, that is the conversation going on right now is about in Mississippi is redefining the um, definition of neglect. And to separate some of this, you know, I have I have good feelings about it, I have bad feelings about it. It's, it's kind of all over the place. I completely understand. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I just, just be, to honest. be honest. It scares me, but I know that we cannot maintain what we're doing now in the volume that is coming yeah but if we don't who will well then that's the issue in mississippi there's not really an alternate plan right now we have great community resources we really do most people do 
but it's not organized. There is not a alternative to this hotline. You know, most of the time, I mean, you may have, you may have um, locally an agency, not even agency, an organization that maybe the school calls. And we all have that. We have food pantries. We have food closets. And I don't believe that every child that needs those helps is coming to this hotline through CPS. We would probably be stunned the amount of people that, you know, are they're already getting that help. But for the ones that it is heightened and they do come through that hotline, the way Mississippi is set up right now, the way that the law is set up right now, it comes through the court system. Well, and we don't take custody every time there's a child that's living in extreme poverty to the point that is dangerous. We don't take custody when it, the problem can be fixed with connecting that family with food stamps or connecting that family with a way to get their water bill or, or a church to help them fix their yeah. house. Churches do all sorts of benevolence mm-hmm. funding. They do. I mean, they every day there's probably every church in my community is having somebody come and needs their water bill paid or needs their electricity bill paid. And those those cases aren't getting reported to the youth court unless it just becomes a situation where they feel like children are in danger. But we have poverty as a ancillary issue to a vast majority of the cases that we do handle for neglect, such as drug use. Well, and yeah, and so poverty is never in a vacuum either. You've got maybe mental health problems that parents have. They can't maintain a job. You've got drug use. It's really hard to maintain a job and stability in the home when there's drug use. And it's rare, very rare, that you see just poverty without these other issues. And so I don't know how we solve, I don't know how we redefine neglect. It's not against a lot of people. No. You know, I mean, it's not. It, 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 and a court system based on that belief should not exist. And I think scripture even says you'll always have the poor among you. Always. But I think that, I think this is a very interesting time in our state that we have a lot of people talking about our children and about the youth court system and about that is the reason, you know, I'm sitting in Jackson here today is that you and I are on the commission for a uniform youth court system. And we're having our first meeting today. And, you know, I think that Mississippi needs to take a look at the system as a whole. And the court is just one part of it. And again, that's for a whole other podcast. But um, I think it is it is an important conversation to have about how we organize the way people get help in Mississippi. Because the court system is one part of it. And the law has to reflect it. All right. So... Neglected children, and and just to quote the law, um, it says that a neglected child is considered neglected who is otherwise without proper care, custody, supervision, support, or for who any reason lacks the special care made necessary for him by reason of his mental condition, whether that mental condition is having mental illness or having an intellectual disability, or who for any reason lacks the care necessary for his health, morals, or well-being. So that's a really broad category. Have you had a case where the family could not get help because they have private insurance? I have had those cases, and it's very frustrating. It's like it's so bad. This, these parents work. They have insurance. 
But unless I put this kid in the custody of the state where he'll get Medicaid, he's not going to be able to get the mental health care that he needs because, he has to have. because there are facilities that won't take private insurance, but they'll take Medicaid. So yeah, it, it's infuriating and it's, it ought to be fixed. All right, moving to the next category, abuse. An abused child is one, and let me just read the definition. It's a abused child means a child whose parent, guardian, or custodian or any person responsible for care and support, whether legally obligated to do so or not, has caused or allowed to be caused upon the child's sexual abuse. And then there's some other sexual exploitation type things, emotional abuse, mental injury, non-accidental physical injury, or any other maltreatment. So this is when you think of abuse, you're thinking of someone who beats their children. A little paragraph here is it's not abuse to spank your children if you're doing it in a reasonable manner. So the court's not going to come in and say you can't spank your child, but if you leave bruises or you spank them with something that is not your traditional spanking tool, you know, the spanking spoon. <laughs> the, you can't use a water hose. You can't use a water or or an extension cord or a barbed wire fence or a two by four. That would be considered physical abuse. You can't leave bruises on a child. These are the situations that you lay in bed at night and you never forget. You know, that these are... Um, I have had, um, since I've been here, I have had five children killed, basically. Um, and it is a, it's a different, your court feels different. You know, you, you, you deal with it. The emotions of people are so high. The emotions of the family that are left to deal with it are so high. And, you know, sometimes we don't even get involved in those because there's proper family. But then sometimes you end up getting involved with, and, and not just where children die, but children are uh, maybe a sibling is, you know, burned or, or, or something. Because what people don't think of is there's other children involved in this. Most of the time, most people have siblings. And most of our cases are not one child cases. And we have to, um, we have, sometimes we get involved in them because the child is deceased. We, when a child is deceased, there is no open youth court case on that child. But they might have siblings. They might have siblings. And so uh, I, we were talking before about, I call it the case that changed my life. And we're not going to get into all of that, of course, here today. But um, it was a situation like this. And it was about what resulted out of that for the children that were left. And the journey that we had to go on, and, and this has been years and years before I was even a judge, the journey that we had to go on to make sure that their lives continued in a safe manner. I've had more and more of this as I have been on the bench. And also with that comes criminal attorneys and comes trials where when we have the adjudication trials, they are represented by their criminal attorneys and it becomes a lot, you know, a lot more than what you normally deal with. And there's lots more players and, well, because what we're doing in youth court is we're just adjudicating the child as abused. We don't need necessarily need to say this is the person who did it because right. sometimes you don't, you don't know, but you know, they've been abused, but we don't, and there's no penalty to the parents other than losing custody of right. their children. 
but there's another action going on in circuit court, perhaps that's the criminal case. Right. So that's why it's just these two courts going at the same time. And the delay, you know, here I am, I have this case that I have a living, breathing child who has everyday needs, who is aging every single day. Part of their childhood is leaving them every day. And then the circuit case, as everyone knows, could last years. Yeah, we've got 30 days to have our trial. <laughs> 30 days. We can get a continuance for good cause, but we've got 30 days to get that, to find the answer. Has the child been abused or not from the time we take custody? Meanwhile, they haven't even guided the parent. For months, months. Yeah. And I, that is such a hard thing to reconcile in parents' minds. I'm constantly reminding people in my courtroom, I have nothing to do with your criminal charge. I don't know how many times I've said that. You know, I understand what you're going through, but it's not this court. Let's talk about aggravating circumstances for just a second. So, when it comes to abuse and neglect, you know, the, the primary goal is to reunify children with parents. That is the stated goal for CPS. That is our mission is to make families whole again. But there are exceptions to that. And the exception is aggravating circumstances. When the abuse is so egregious that it would not make sense to try to reunify this child with this parent then we as judges find aggravating circumstances. And if we do that, then basically the reunification is not the goal anymore. Not saying it couldn't happen, because it can, but we don't have to put the child in this situation where we're forcing reunification with the parent who might have raped them or the parent who, who killed one of their siblings. Or a parent who sat by and allowed it to happen. Right. Because, you know, in the abuse statute, it also says that a child whose parent guardian custodian has caused or allowed to be caused. You know, sometimes we have in aggravated circumstances situations, we have a mother who maybe did not actually do the sexual abuse or whatever, but there is there is strong evidence that she knew about it and did not intervene. And, and you know, the... The aggravated circumstance that causes us to make that finding can be chronic, you know, or it can be so egregious it can be one time. I think that a lot of courts don't use the aggravated as um, maybe as often as they, they can. And I think that if you're listening to this and you're a judge, that take a minute and read it. And I apologize, I don't have my bitch book in front of me to cause it, but it's under the disposition statute for uh, abuse and neglected children and it gives you all the specifics about how it can work because that will reduce children's time in care and can move a very damaged child to permanency a lot faster you know we don't we know that they have not been criminally found guilty but most of the time in these situations you have a forensic you have disclosures from children you have physical evidence. You have doctors that can testify to that physical evidence. You know, it, it is the express lane. We call it that sometimes. You're well, in the express lane. Yeah, and our standard of proof is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's clear and convincing evidence that this child was abused. Like I said, we don't have to determine who did it. I mean, most of the time it's part of the facts, but 
we just have to adjudicate this child as abused. And if we want to find aggravating circumstances, we can do that. All right. So the next category of types of kids that we see are a, a child in need of special care. You mentioned a while ago the child whose parents have health insurance, but the health insurance won't get their child the care that it needs. And so I've used that category, a child in need of special care. Usually when a child has a a mental or physical illness that can't be treated because the parents are unable or because the parents are, they're, they're doing the best they can, but for some reason it can't be accomplished. Um, you use that when you have a family like what we were talking about with the insurance. I do. Yeah. Because we don't want those parents to be labeled as perpetrators. Right. They yeah. weren't neglectful. They're doing the best they can, yeah. but because the system is messed up, and because our the mental health facilities, the few that we have, might not take private insurance, or they might take private insurance, but the insurance company's benefits run out after two weeks. That's not helpful. Um, so a child in need of special care, if that comes to the attention of the youth court, the youth court can do something about that by adjudicating them a child in need of special care. And then the last category I think that we haven't talked about is called a dependent child. And we were talking before we hit the record button about dependent child. I don't think I've ever adjudicated someone as a, quote, dependent child. The definition would be a child who's not in any other category, but yet is in the custody of CPS and they've been put there voluntarily. So I think probably that would be an orphan or a child who's been put in one of these new baby boxes that we're getting across the state. They've been voluntarily relinquished into the state's custody. And so I, th- I guess I've learned something today by really looking at that, because if we start getting, we have a, we're going to have a baby box in our county um, in the next couple of years. And it not that you have to have a baby box for people to surrender newborns, because that can happen at the hospital mm-hmm. without a so-called box. But are vo- abandoned at the Department of CPS or a fire department, that can already happen. Um, just in a recap. The types of kids that we see are delinquent children, children in need of supervision, a neglected child, which includes educational, medical, surgical, or physical neglect, an abused child, which includes mental abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse, and sexual abuse, including sexual exploitation, a child in need of special care, and a dependent child. And then the truant child is sort of in there under the child in need of supervision, but it kind of has a category all its own because there's a whole nother statute on truancy. Uh, I want to say that uh, all of this we've been talking about here today is, I call it under the definition section, it is uh, Mississippi Code uh, 4321-105, and all of these are set forth through the definitions. We learned something here today, and we do this every day. Yeah, but actually reading it out loud and and speaking the words and, and um, tossing it back and forth, um, I've learned some things today that I'm going to go back and and maybe tweak some of what we're doing. So um, I enjoyed it today. I like this. Maybe yeah. I can come back to Jackson soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, don't forget that if you have questions, we do have an email address, youthcourtunsealed at gmail.com. If you're on Spotify, there's a place underneath the podcast where you can type a quick question. And until the next time, we are adjourned.